just so we're clear, you said the purpose of a litigator is to be helpful. Is that what you just said? Welcome to the Mint's IP podcast, Exclusive Rights. Uh, my name is Drew DeVogue. I'm a partner here at Mint's in the IP litigation section. I'm talking today with Todd Buck, uh, who has a PhD in some science I can't understand, but his practice focuses primarily on patent prosecution. So actually acquiring the patents that me and my group tend to litigate years down the road. Uh, welcome, Todd. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Appreciate being here. So uh, you posed the question to me a couple of days ago, and we decided to sit down and hit record. What were you interested in talking about? When you and I were exchanging emails and then talking on the phone, I thought it would be a good idea to just walk through claim construction from both a, a litigator's point of view, as well as uh, maybe what we as prosecutors can do to perhaps lighten your burden and really to keep you guys from yelling at us six or seven years down the road from uh, writing the wrong claims or drafting the wrong specifications. So to me, claim construction uh, starts at the very beginning of the patent prosecution process of talking to the inventors, and you're going to try to set yourself up for the best and most optimal claim construction going forward. And that's where we would hand the ball off to you litigators. Fair enough. You know, to your point about hindsight being 2020, I think as a litigator, it's always easy to cast aspersions at the prosecutors, you know, six, seven, 10 years down the line when, you know, the technology has evolved, the art has evolved, the way you view the relevant teachings in the specification and, and, the language deployed in in the claims can be different, especially through the cold lens of of litigation when you've got you know sophisticated counsel on the other side uh, coming up with a bunch of really creative arguments that maybe you didn't have in mind or, or couldn't reasonably anticipate uh, during prosecution. So I guess starting with first principles, you know what what's the point of claim construction? I guess in my mind as a litigator, the the case law is developed to essentially teach that a court should undertake the construction of disputed claim terms to the extent it would be helpful to the fact finder in understanding uh, specific terms of art used in patent claim terms. We were talking before we, we hit record about the fundamental canons of claim construction. You start with the Supreme Court's last opportunity to weigh in on it. I shouldn't say the opportunity. The last time they chose to weigh in on it, um, which I, I think we agreed was Markman. Yeah, certainly the mechanics of how to construe a claim. There's been a couple other ones about de novo review here and there and, and whatnot, but the mechanics of who's to construe it and how it's construed, I think we agree is probably Markman in 96. Right. And you had a pretty interesting observation about how Markman has been applied in practice by the federal uh, circuit and the lower district courts. And I, and I think you noted that there does appear to be at least on its face some tension between what the Supreme Court said in Markman and how that guidance has been applied on the ground. Yeah. Uh, you know, when you look at Markman, they didn't get into the mechanics of it too much, but they did say that, of course, a judge 
should construe claims, and they and they did use language that you've got to construe the claims in view of the entire specification, more of a, a holistic approach, uh, if you will. Uh, they were citing 19th century law on uh, construing other legal terms in in the context of, of legal documents, and so they made a comment that you've got to construe or judges have to construe claims in in view of the specification. What to me is interesting is in somewhat recent development with Phillips, I guess, is this notion that claims are now construed in their customary and ordinary meaning. And if you look at some of the language since Phillips, some district courts or some, um, uh, I guess the ITC would be one as well, they only revert back to the specification for instances of clear lexicography and clear and unambiguous disavowal. So in other words, they're going to construe the claim terms using a customary and ordinary meaning, and they're really only going to resort back to the specification if needed. And I wonder, I was asking you, as someone who has argued claim construction, does that ever come up to where there's almost two approaches now to when you've got this holistic approach that seemed to be uh, suggested in Markman? And since then, the Supreme Court hasn't changed its rules versus Phillips, the Embank decision that said, let's go with customary and ordinary, and we're going to re- resort to the specification in specific instances. I think the answer to the question is yes, that that issue has come up. I was involved in a, a Markman argument within the last couple of months in front of Judge Albright in the Western District of Texas, uh, who takes a very... I think, strict view of that concept where uh, he is going to follow the plain and ordinary meaning of a claim term unless the two exceptions to that general principle are present. And lexicography, meaning did the patentee clearly define within the specification a meaning of a particular claim term that may diverge from the ordinary understanding? For example, for purposes of this specification, X term means Y, quote unquote. That's the clearest example. Sometimes even using the id est or IE parenthetical has been understood to be a binding definition of a term. So that's lexicography. Uh, the other exception to the that plain and ordinary concept is whether the patentee said something in prosecution in its interactions with the patent office that somehow narrowed or, or otherwise specified the scope of a term. And that, that must be a clear and unmistakable disavowal. That's the sort of magic language there. It depends on the court though, because some courts, it seems as though all that's necessary for the court to impose a particularized meaning on a disputed claim term is the fact that it's disputed. and that sometimes goes back to the O2 micro case in which the Fed Circuit said, look, if there's a live dispute among the parties as to what the meaning of a disputed claim term is, the court should resolve the dispute. Now, I think fairly read that can be, I'm resolving the dispute by imposing the plain and ordinary meaning of the claim language itself, uh, which some commentators have have noted is essentially buying a Russian doll problem where you have a construction of the construction of the construction where you 
you know, later in the application of the claim term as construed, the uh, experts on each side are offering their additional gloss and interpretation on on how the construction should be construed. But you know that, in my mind, is an issue that is present even beyond the plain and ordinary meaning, where you know even if the court does give a particularized construction to a disputed claim term, you're still going to have the construction of the construction Russian doll issue down the line. Well, that's just because we're using words to define words. There's no way to get to the end of that circular loop that once we have something defined by a set of terms, a set of words, are those up in dispute? Are those ambiguous? I've, I've been, I, when you know I used to uh, be on the litigation side, I've been in, uh, received Markman hearing opinions to where the claim terms are so much worse after the uh after the markman hearing that we yeah be careful what you ask for right it, yeah it's almost like did i think the judge wants us to settle because neither one of us knows what we're doing now at this point and that could be a trick up her sleeve that she pulled on us right right so i was curious you know my my lens is almost exclusively litigation and and one thing i was wondering was how how do these basic principles of claim construction get applied on the front end when you're actually making the sausage in prosecution, what are the circumstances under which you decide to clearly define a term in a specification? And what are the factors that go into making a clear and unmistakable disclaimer? I mean, I guess the, the obvious response is, well, to get around kill shot prior art, but I, I assume there's more to it than that. Yes, you, you, you litigators seem to think it's super easy to do this, and so you <laughs> like to yell at us seven years later. But no, it, it, a thoughtfully prepared specification and set of claims uh, should be just that. It should be very thoughtful, uh, and it should be to, for lack of a better term or excuse the pun, uh, try to anticipate, if you will, some of the issues coming down the line. You know, one of the things that that we do here is we do draft a, a set of claims first. Um, we use that as our outline going forward, and we go back and forth with the client or with the inventor or both and really try to get to an understanding of this is what you're doing. After we get that set of claims drafted, we then use those claims as an outline. And if we're doing our job right, we have an idea from the client what we believe will be some of the commercial embodiments down the road. So I'm a life sciences person. If we're dealing with a, an antibody, uh, for example, we're probably going to spend some time defining the word antibody because an the antibody, the word antibody will be in, in the claims uh, at, at some point. And then we spend a, a significant amount of time trying to create maybe nested uh, definitions, if you will, starting with the broad definition of, of antibody. This is what structurally this this may or may not mean. Uh, and then we get down to specific embodiments of, of maybe what a bispecific antibody is or things like that. And we have each one of those is a little bit more narrow to where when we do receive some sort of prior art that we didn't know about during prosecution, we can fall back on one of those a little bit more narrow definitions. So, so it's almost like you're building in escape hatches. Yes, as as best you can. And so right. you start as broadly as you can, and then you go as narrow as you need to get past examination or prior art, et cetera, to where, yes, likely there's some sort of 
disavowal in there, even though we're not using the words disavow when we're responding to an office action. But a litigator is going to pick up on the fact that we went from antibody down to chimeric antibody, and they're going to know what the, that difference is. Uh, so there's going to be a disavowal of some of those types of embodiments within that. Well, argue, arguably a disavowal. And that, arguably. That's, where the, that's where the advocacy comes in, right? <laughs> that's why we need you guys to, to leave it squishy as, as much as possible. Well, that we can do for you for sure. And the other thing, too, is, you know, looking at the canons of construction, it's funny when we were talking about this, I went and sort of brushed up on my canons of construction. And it's there's a lot of canons of constructions and there's also exceptions to the canons, which to me is odd because a canon is supposed to be somewhat of an ironclad set of rules, if you will. But there are certain canons of construction that you can either use or you or you even try to avoid. So, for example, uh, you know, one of those canons that I learned, you know, years ago was that a claim construction in which a preferred embodiment in the specification isn't included must necessarily be wrong. Um, and so what we try to do is we avoid that by not using terms preferred embodiment in the specification. There's no requirement uh, of law in uh, in the U.S. or any jurisdiction that I know of, frankly, that the terms preferred embodiment be in there. So you avoid having litigators argue about that canon of construction six years down the road by just removing it altogether, which then creates some squishiness uh, for you guys as well uh, going down the line. Uh, others are the own lexicographer. I think it was the medicines uh, company. It was a Fed Circuit case in 2017 where the specification did define a few terms, but it didn't say as used herein or as defined herein to where that's clear lexicography that what we're trying to say is by this term, this is what we mean. And so regardless of the two schools of thought, for example, you go the holistic approach that Markman says versus the the Phillips approach of customary and ordinary, except for disavowal lexicography. If you put words in there, like as defined herein, as used herein, that seems to help you on either side of the aisle, if you will, on that claim construction approach. So there's things that you can do, but you've got to know what they are. You can't simply draft an application and copy paste a lot of material from something else that you've read and put it in there. You really do need to focus on what the client is trying to achieve. Yeah. And I've, I've seen that approach uh, in past cases where I've litigated patents where it's clear that the prosecutor was cutting corners. Um, you know, I think it's, it's human nature to try to reuse uh, language if you've already generated it for a certain purpose, but I presume that that's a very risky uh, approach for for a prosecutor. Um, yes, it's very dangerous to uh, simply cut and paste something from an earlier application or an uh, earlier filed uh, patent out there. You, you really do need to spend some time with the client to really get an understanding of, of really what the purpose of the application is. Well, you and I talked about this as too, is at one point, as a prosecuting attorney, you've been told you need to draft an application to cover our commercial embodiment, which is what you're trying to do. Seven so years later, defensive, defensive purposes. Defensive, correct. Seven years later, maybe the asset changes hands and you're hired to now go for potential infringers and using it as an offensive purpose. And so the, the purpose of the application can change over time. And 
the way it's written, therefore, might not be the best uh, for that specific approach years down the line. Yeah, and I can imagine as someone being asked to draft claims that not only adequately cover a client's own product or products in development for defensive purposes, but also trying to anticipate to use a dangerous word in, in the <laughs> patent context, uh, where the industry and technology is going to go, that that must put you all in an interesting position. Um, one question I had for you is, we've already noted somewhat in jest that, that litigators tend to use the cold light of hindsight to blame prosecutors for uh, perceived failings. But b- beyond that, what's one thing you wish litigators better understood about the prosecution uh, process? Probably just how complicated it can be and how difficult it can be. Uh, I think sometimes we also use things, say, in the United States or words or responses in an office section in the United States because of something that was said overseas. And so one thing that we're constantly having to keep intact is what's being said overseas that a litigator might use against us. We, we're not, we're trying to have consistent claim language and we're trying to have consistent claim interpretation to where something that we're saying in Europe is applicable here in the U.S. And so different issues arise, there's different standards of patentability arise to where sometimes we may have been painted into a corner uh, and it's not even the a corner that was painted here in the United States. And so just having an understanding from the litigators that maybe this is the best we're going to be able to do uh, is probably a thing to go in the right direction as far as, as just being comfortable with talking to your prosecuting attorneys as well. That makes a lot of sense. I, I think from my perspective, the things I wish judges sometimes better understood about the claim construction process is that uh, not everything needs a particularized definition just because a party says it needs a particularized definition. I mean, I think back to my earlier comments, the purpose is to ostensibly be helpful to the fact finder. If there are terms that should be construed in a way to make it clearer for a, a lay jury, um, and just so we're clear, you said the purpose of a litigator is to be helpful. Is that what you just said? <laughs> well, the purpose of the claim construction process. I'm, I'm not sure. Okay. All right. A litigator's purpose is... Uh, want some clarification on what you meant by that. But yeah. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, so with that predicate, um, no, I, I guess the, the thread is just parties are going to disagree about the meaning of a claim term for their own purposes, right? Often a patent holder is going to argue plain and ordinary because it gives her optionality down the road in the application of the claim terms. Um, On the flip side, an accused infringer is going to want to go for a narrower definition to provide a non-infringement argument. But just because a party says that a term of art needs a particularized definition doesn't make it so. And I think sometimes judges don't give juries or even themselves enough credit. If you actually spend time with the specification if you guys as prosecutors have done your job and explains the technology in a way that's approachable and accessible, then even complex concepts as articulated in the claim terms uh, can be, if not readily understood, understood with some study. 
that gets back to some of the language used in uh, the Markman case at the Supreme Court when the court said, if there's, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, but there, if there's a possibility of dueling experts, if you will, really resort to the specification should solve that to where even if a party wants to proffer another definition of something else, you've still got to get back to that specification and see which of those experts has more credibility in view of the specification. So to your point, just because you hire another expert to cast out on the meaning of a claim, I still think it's got to get back to the specification. Well, that that's first principles. I mean, the you have to read patent claim terms in the context of the patent claim as read in the context of the teachings of the specification, which the Supreme Court said is the approach. Now, what sophisticated litigators with professional expert witnesses can make mischief with knows no bounds. But, you know, I think the coming back to the main principle that only where there is ambiguity that needs to be resolved, that will truly be helpful for the fact finder, should it be necessary to provide a particularized construction. And that can get back to uh, a little bit of the specification drafting, if you will. If, if it's an important term, uh, again, it's impossible to anticipate everything that you guys are going to do and throw against the wall to see what sticks six years down the road. But if you have some forethought as to what might be important, it really does behoove you to spend time drafting an application with these nested definitions thoughtfully. A serious asset that your client wants to protect, they they need to be working with their counsel to try to do their best to make sure the specification is really the only thing a judge needs to construe those claims. Otherwise, you've got, like we talked about, dueling experts arguing about what a customary and ordinary definition really is, which seems odd to me that you'd have two different opinions on what one word means uh, if it's supposed to be customary and ordinary. Um, so a thoughtfully draft specification hopefully will make you guys' jobs a little bit easier down the line. I agree with that. Well, this has been uh, really informative and appreciate you taking the time today, Todd. Thanks, Joe. Always appreciate it. Always nice to talk to, to litigators to where they yell at us a little bit less uh, <laughs> during these uh, during these Markman trials and, and during the, these litigations. No, we're all, we, we always... Uh, are happy and thrilled to work with the, the litigators here. And it's a, it's a really good relationship, um, but it can be frustrating. These things can be frustrating for all of us involved, not just you guys, but us as well. Six years down the road when we as a team collectively couldn't have seen something that, that's popped up. No, that makes a lot of sense. It, it's been illuminating to hear a little bit more about the other side of the coin uh, in the context of claim construction. Without a patent, you guys wouldn't be in court. So just keep that in mind. From, from your mouth to God's ears, my friend. Thank you. <laughs> All right. Take care, everybody.